Matthew 2, beginning in verse 12 and reading down through verse 15. And I want to preach to you this morning on the message of his birth. There's a message here, and I want you to see it. I'm hopeful that uh, I can kind of draw it out for you in, in the preaching here. Would you stand with me as we read the passage together? Matthew 2, beginning in verse 12. These are the words of God. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that uh, all the things that you did in the life of Christ, many things that are not recorded, uh, we know that you did those things, but Lord, the things that you've recorded, are for our good, for our spiritual instruction. And I pray that we would receive instruction from you, that we would see what Christ did, because whatever happened to Christ happens to us as well, and that we would believe that and follow his example in our lives. Lord, he is more than an example to us. He is our Savior. And his life was given as a ransom to, for us. I pray that we would believe that, but then, Lord, that we would also recognize that uh, it is our duty to follow Christ. I pray that we would. I ask that you'd help me as I preach, that uh, you would be in control here in this time, that you would guide me as I preach, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, Matthew, in, in the first couple chapters of Matthew, Jesus, you know, the, the Word of God, the Bible, is establishing Christ's legitimate claim to the throne of Israel. He starts with his human claim, and he has, it's, this is not God just inserting him into the world. That's what you need to understand, is that Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere and boom, land on the earth, and here I am, God in the flesh. Uh, but there was a genealogy, and, the, and Matthew is careful to establish that, and he opens, in fact, the Gospel of Matthew by telling us that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then going in to justify that claim, to show that there is a, a traceable lineage from Joseph back to David, back to Abraham, uh, so that we see then that Dave, Jesus has a rightful claim to the throne. He is a legitimate heir to the throne. But then Matthew immediately uh, transitions. And this is something that, that we get. Like, have you ever seen one of those pictures? They're kind of textured. And, and uh, if you stand on one side, you get one picture. And then you move uh, or change the angle. And the picture changes, you get a different picture. And this is what Matthew is doing. He's showing you that this is the same thing. 
And Jesus has a, a human claim to Israel's throne, but also Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, uh, God with us. And so between Matthew 1 and 2, there's this constant changing the perspective so that you are seeing both. Matthew is presenting both to you, both his humanity and his deity, but both as man and as God, Jesus is the Messiah King. And that's what Matthew intends to establish in our hearts and minds. Now in Matthew chapter 2, he shows in a human sense that these foreign dignitaries, they've often been called kings, you know we sing, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. Right, but you always stop the R. Orient are. I gotta think. No, they're bearing gifts. Right? They bring these gifts as one who is superior to them. The nations of the world bowing, doing obeisance to him as the superior one, as a baby. And so Matthew is giving us that as the setting, but also telling us that the birth of Christ was a threat. It posed an immediate threat to the tyrants and oppressors of Israel. <clears throat> now, the entire gospel centers on the way the rulers, the, the religious leaders, religious authorities of Israel were threatened by Jesus and the way they responded to that threat, which ultimately resulted in him being crucified. That's what the Gospels are taken up with. But before that, we find, and Matthew tells us this, that Herod the Great himself felt the tension, felt the threat that the birth of Jesus posed to him as a usurper king. Jesus is, in fact, the born king of Israel. Herod is a usurper. Herod, because he's a usurper, Herod is very <clears throat> ruthless in defending his claim to the throne and warding off all threats to it, all who would seek to overthrow him. And Herod is brutal as a tyrant. And, and Matthew lays that out for us and establishes it and shows us the way that that affects Jesus. Now, we'll come to that. We're not at that yet, except that that is the reason why Jesus goes to Egypt. Herod is threatened by the birth of this born king of Israel. Herod is not a born king of Israel. He's an Edomite, an Egyptian. He has no legitimate claim other than that Caesar Augustus appointed him and the Roman Senate approved him to be Israel's king. He knows that. That's part of what haunts him throughout his life, along with a lot of other really wicked things that Herod did and was involved in. And uh, we can go into that uh, some other time, not now. <clears throat> but in the face of this threat, immediate threat that Jesus opposed, that 
that Jesus presented to Herod, posed to Herod, <clears throat> Herod then threatens Jesus. And that's what inspires this particular passage of Scripture, the threat of Herod against Jesus. This is what we see here. Right now, in, in a sense, Jesus is vindicated in this. He is demonstrated to be legitimately the Son of God because of what happens here. But And there's a message in this, and I want to get to that. All right? So Herod... <clears throat> I'm sorry, Matthew presents Jesus as the true Son of God, okay? So he's true claimant to the throne, true Son of God. And in this passage, Matthew does two things to show that Jesus is the true Son of God. First of all, he describes the way God watches over his Son. I want you to see that. And then secondly, he relates the infancy of Christ to the infancy of Israel. Israel is God's son, and now, vested in one person, a single individual, God, and, and in fact, in Matthew, several times repeatedly, Matthew speaks of God saying about Jesus, this is my beloved son. So this is a repeated theme in the book of Matthew. We see it here First, he relates the infancy of Christ to the infancy of Israel. So Jesus is God's son. Here's how you know. God called his son out of Egypt. Okay, that's what Matthew is saying. And Matthew makes three important points in this passage. First, God anticipated every threat against his son and provided for his son's welfare. Second, the life of Jesus sums up and fully explains the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament. And then thirdly, what happens to Jesus happens to us. The life of Jesus explains our own experience as Christians. So I want to go through those three things. First of all, God was a good father. I want to show you that. And I want to give a challenge to fathers as well. The first half of Matthew 2 shows us the kind of pressure that Jesus Christ's birth put on Israel's rulers. As I've already pointed out, reminded you, and we preached about last week as well. They felt the pressure that Christ's birth caused them. Most of the tension in Christ's life is caused by their response to his threat because clearly they recognize that he is going to overthrow them if they don't do something about it. Herod wants to do something immediately. The, the, the religious authorities are going to go at it a different way, but ultimately they succeed where Herod failed because they get Jesus on the cross. That will come. But immediately, Herod the Great responded with a scorched earth policy. Overkill. Overkill. All right? So when, when Herod chose all the babies of Bethlehem and all the coast thereof and ordered that they be slaughtered, it was overkill. Overkill, number one, because 
Jesus wouldn't have been two years old. It's, it's highly doubtful that he was anywhere close to two years old. But Herod wanted to make sure that his dragnet would catch him. And secondly, because not only did he kill all the babies of Bethlehem, but he, had, he ordered the murder, the slaughter of all the babies in all the coasts thereof. And we don't really know how far those coasts might have extended. So the, the threat to Jesus, Herod's threat to Jesus was immediate and it was deadly. It was a lethal threat. This was not a slight thing. This was not a, a thing that you could just dismiss and say, oh, come on, Herod, get out of here. It was a real threat and God dealt with it as a real threat. This is where our familiarity with the story sometimes detracts from the story. We tend to skim right past what is happening here. I want you to notice, Herod was not playing games. But the Bible does not, and this is, this is what we want, I want you to notice. The Bible doesn't present this as a dramatic, razor-thin escape from danger. All right? Now, we have movie-trained minds. All right, we are used to stories being told in movies. And so in a movie, you know that everything has to be exaggerated. The threat has to be exaggerated. You've got to have this dramatic music. You've got to have Joseph just, just getting out the, you know, the back door because the soldiers are knocking on the front door of the house and he's escaping out the back. And they're sneaking through alleys and winding their way out of Bethlehem and away from the, the, the village. And they just barely make it. And you've got to sit on the edge of your seat and you've got to be concerned. The Bible doesn't present it that way at all. I want you to notice this. <clears throat> Matthew has a knack for understatement. He does this actually quite often. His presentation here seems almost casual and offhanded, which is why we're tempted to skim over it like this was no big deal. It was a big deal, but not because Herod was weak or because the soldiers didn't really mean business or were half-hearted about what they were doing. It was, it was <clears throat> a, a serious threat, but Jesus wasn't in imminent danger. I'll explain why. Now Herod persuaded the wise men to bring him word again of the young child, and he expected that they would do that. There's every indication that they would. It would be bad for diplomacy diplomatic relationships if they promised to do it and didn't do it and it would be bad if they didn't promise to do it and I think Herod was well Herod was a pretty persuasive guy I mean he persuaded really um, Caesar uh, Julius Caesar as I understand it to put him on the throne of Israel to begin with and he was able to maneuver all the you know after Julius Caesar was murdered there was a lot of uh, there was a long war <coughs> First of all, between uh, Mark Antony and uh, Octavian, who fought against Brutus and Cassius, but then 
fought for control of the kingdom. And there was a long war between the two, and Herod just navigated that like a master. He, he was just very good at protecting his own interests. I'll say that, right? Um, so he was, he was a politician. He knew how to get you, bring you into his debt, and he did that with these men. So I think that, I mean, there's every indication that the wise men intended to go back and tell Herod where Jesus was found. Matthew presents here a timely intervention. God warned them not to return to Herod, and that bought Joseph precious time, because Herod's waiting for them to return, and they're not returning. So you know how that can be when someone says that they're going to come, and you're waiting for them to come, and they're not showing up, and you're delaying because you're thinking they're going to show up, right? And you're going to be able to take care of this, and they're not showing up. <clears throat> From what Matthew says here, it would seem that the same night, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. The same night that God warned wise men not to return to Herod, that same night, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Notice how Matthew presents this in verse 13. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream. Appeareth is present tense. Matthew is putting us in the scene. He's making this a vivid thing so that we can picture it. This happened at night. Matthew, I think this is, again, something interesting about the Bible and the way the stories are told. Uh, it's clear that this is happening at night, and that is an indication that Herod is literally in the dark about this whole thing. While the wise men were dreaming, God warned them not to return Herod, so they departed into their own country another way. I believe that they immediately, when they had the dream, immediately got up and immediately left. And when they were departed, the Bible says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph a second time. When they were departed is a temporal participle. Matthew here is giving us a timeline. He's showing us a stream of events here. He wants us to know, though, that this is not a narrow escape. God sees the danger to his son and takes sovereign action as his father. And I say that because this is the role that a father should play in his children's lives. God, if you want to know how to be a father, study God the Father. Study the way he reacts and deals with his own son. And this is what you see God doing. God recognizes danger to his son, and God takes decisive action to protect his son. He anticipates the threat to his physical well-being. So fathers, you should anticipate threats to the physical well-being of your children and take decisive steps to protect them. Secure your home. Keep a firearm. Stay in good physical condition so you can protect them. But also have godly discernment about where you let your children go. Once upon a time, we had a father in our church 
who had got a phone call in the middle of the night from the police who had found his daughter in the park doing drugs with a young man. Now I say this to you, that should never happen in a Christian home. A father should not be awakened to discover from the police that his daughter or his son have snuck out of the house and gotten themselves into trouble because fathers should be involved in their children's lives, should be aware of what their children are involved with, should be concerned with their children, should be involved that way. Dad, you're responsible to know where your children are, to know what they're doing, to know who they are involved with, to know their friends. There's never been a friend that my kids have where I haven't been interested in finding out who they are. I want to know who they are. And I'm not going to be denied on that. I'm not going to be told that, oh, Dad, come on. You can just trust me, right? Yeah, I can. I don't trust them. I don't know if I can trust them. I'd like to think I can, but I want to protect you because I am your father. God gave me that duty. And by the way, God did the same with the son of God. He was involved in protecting him. A 13 year old son <clears throat> sneaked out of the house of a good friend of mine, snuck out of his house in the middle of the night Someone had invited him to a party. A stranger invited him to a party. He snuck out of the house in the middle of the night, went to the party, was drugged and abused. That night, his life was changed and his father didn't know about it for years. That's the kind of thing that honestly is negligence borders on criminal negligence on the part of a father. You must be involved. You must know not just what your kids are doing and who they're doing it with, but you must know their heart. You must know them. You must be spending time with them, drawing them out like you draw water out of a well, drawing them out to hear what's on their mind, to hear what's in their heart, to know what they're thinking about, to know what they're concerned with. Many lives have been ruined because fathers ignored their children, paid no attention to them, were not concerned about them. Now I'm saying to you that the perfect Lamb of God had a father who was watching out for his interests, protecting him, engaged, involved, realizing, seeing what was going on around him and was guarding him. But you're also responsible for the spiritual well-being of your children. You, if you're concerned about physical threats against your children, you should be much more concerned about spiritual threats against them. And these kinds of threats can come from the outside, for sure. Friends and acquaintances who are a harmful influence on them. But don't forget that you're raising little sinners, right? You know, your kids come home and they say a bad word. And what do you do? Huh? You ask them which one of your friends said that word. 
Which one of your friends taught you that word, huh? <clears throat> because we just think naturally that my son would never say that, right? Well, I'm not going to say to you the things that I said when I was a kid, but I'm going to tell you that I heard those words and I was impressed by those words and my wicked little heart wanted to say those words. Parents, realize that you are raising little sinners. They don't need bad influences to lead them astray. Their own heart will lead them astray. And you can keep them, you know, you can move up to uh, way up to the Canadian border in Montana and you can build a cabin and you can make sure that your nearest neighbor is 40 miles away. But your kids are still sinners. And you can protect them from any other influence, but you will not keep them. Well, I mean, for one thing, they're being raised by a sinner. And you're going to rub off on them, too. And you can't protect them from all contact with sinful people. But even if you could, they would still sin. You need to realize that. In my experience, kids who are led astray are usually quite willing to be led astray. It isn't like they were somehow hypnotized and dragged kicking and screaming into some wicked sin or evil thing. Dad, you should know your children's weaknesses. And you should anticipate the times when that weakness is likely to cause them to stumble. Many times I have warned my children when I saw temptation on the horizon. When I saw a situation, and sometimes that starts when they're very young. You know, when there's some, something my wife and I read and we agreed with and we did this with our children. It's just to realize when they're tired, when they're little kids and they're tired and very likely they're gonna have a meltdown if you push them. And so you don't push them. That's not the time because you don't want to stumble them. Many ways that parents stumble their children. Now, yes, you want to bear, you want to teach them to be strong, not fragile, to be durable, but that will come. And it doesn't always come when they're toddlers. But I think that there's also a recognition, even when your children are teenagers, to realize that this situation is going to bring with it certain temptations that my children are susceptible to and to talk to them. I remember when, whenever we had guests in our home, you know, we, we um, nicknamed our family the, the Maliacs because our kids love to talk. And they love to talk so much that they don't love to um, be, to wait their turn and be respectful, especially when they were little. And so there were many times we would have guests coming to our house, and about 10 minutes before the guests were to arrive, I would gather them around the table, and I would say, now, while they're here, you may talk, and I would give them the times when you can talk. And these times, you cannot talk. When you hear an adult talking, you hear the sound of their voice, that's your indication you are not to be talking. You wait until they are finished talking. You do not interrupt them. And 
When you say what you want to say, then you stop talking. You don't just keep, you know, now that you have the floor, you just, like, you're not a senator. All right? You just go, like, you're, this is not, you know, the time for you to, um, what do they call that? Uh, uh, the filibuster, that's right. We're not going to have a filibuster at the table here. All right? And then after they were gone, after the guests were gone, we'd gather around again and we'd say, how do we do? How do we do with this? This is where you did great. This is where you didn't. But this is what I'm talking about, to recognize your children's weaknesses. If you know that your children are prone to gossip, prone to a critical spirit, arm them against it. Teach them how to overcome that. If you know that your children are tempted to arrogance, equip them to war against the flesh. If you know that your children struggle with the lusts of the flesh and the mind, help them overcome. Provide them with the tools they need so that they can overcome. God anticipated Herod's threat and put his son out of Herod's reach. Jesus was well on his way to Egypt by the time the soldiers arrived in Bethlehem. So was the threat real? Yes. But was Jesus threatened by it? No, because his father was watching over him. Matthew uses the same word for departed in verse 12 and in verse 13. In verse 12, it's indicative. They really departed. In verse 13, it's a participle, so attaching Joseph's dream to the departure of the wise men. It is not a stretch to say that as the wise men were departing, God was rousing Joseph out of bed. And verse 14 says, when he arose, that's another temporal participle right there. So giving the timing, this is the stream of events here. The Bible means to say that Joseph immediately gathered his things and departed that very night with Joseph, with Jesus and Mary. God the Father is taking immediate responsibility for the son's well-being. Joseph serves as a caretaker and guardian. God acts sovereignly on behalf of his son. And so fathers, take responsibility for your children. The second thing I want to show you is that Jesus was the perfect son. The perfect son. Matthew tells us that Jesus was in Egypt until the death of Herod. And this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Now, once again, we come up against fulfilled prophecy. Matthew chapter 2 is full of fulfilled prophecy. In fact, there are four of them in this passage here. And this is the second of those four. Now, we tend to think that prophecy in the Bible works in a very straightforward, you know, like Nostradamus once predicted, you know, that it was going to rain on the 4th of July in 2024. And we can map it out. We can see it. It's cool. And we tend to think that it's like this straight prediction fulfillment continuum, all right? And that's not what we have in Scripture at all. <clears throat> Matthew quotes Hosea 11 in verse 1 exactly, word for word. So we imagine Hosea, you know, in the midst of his 
prophesying uh, with Israel, almost we, we think that he was just making predictions about the future. And he was like given this laundry list of predictions. And then he came to this one. Oh, yes, and by the way, when the Messiah is born, he's going to go to Egypt and then he's going to come back to Israel. And so we think that that's the way it would work, but that's not the way it works at all. In fact, Hosea, you know, that's the thing about the Old Testament prophets. They know that they're prophesying. They know that all of this is ultimately going to be fulfilled in the Messiah, the promised one. But they don't know how this is going to happen. They can't envision it. They can't picture it. It's like if, if, if you are watching, have you ever set, been in one of those places, like an old-fashioned place, and they've got clay and they're throwing it on the wheel, you know, and then they're taking and they're sticking their hands in there and they're, 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 they're fashioning it. But you don't know exactly what they're making. Like with pottery, it's kind of easy because you get, you know, it's going to be a jar or a cup or a mug or a bowl or something like that. But, but you can't really picture what they're going for, what they're trying to make as they stretch that out and add more uh, clay to it and so on. And, and the prophets, they're in the middle of this prophesying. So <clears throat> this is what you see in Hosea. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I actually, a year ago, I preached through the prophecies and I went at it from the prophet, from the prophet itself. So I broke down what the prophet himself said. And so I was rehearsing some of that in preparation for this. But God made Hosea into a kind of object lesson for the people of Israel. And Hosea might be the most famous of all the prophets for his personal life. Other prophets we know very little about personally, but Hosea we know a lot about because of a situation that happens at the beginning of Hosea where God calls Hosea to take a wife. I believe that Hosea was very much in love with Gomer, his wife's name, that he loved her, and that together they had a son. And then, after the birth of that son, things fell apart. And his wife was unfaithful to him. And the Bible tells us that her second child, a daughter, it seems to indicate that that second child was not Hosea's. That that second child, that daughter, was conceived with another man. I believe for sure, whether, whether the second child or not, for sure the third child was conceived with another man. Because <clears throat> Hosea called the son Lo-Ami. Lo-Ami means not mine. And Hosea 2 and verse 4 says, And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot, she that conceived them hath done shamefully. Now that seems to be the point 
of Hosea's life, and this is something that God did from time to time, periodically, with various prophets. He would have them be serve as a kind of <clears throat> illustration, an object lesson of, of a point that God was trying to make. And in Hosea's life, God allowed Hosea to experience the pain and shame of betrayal, to be betrayed by your wife, to have your wife step out on you like that. God allowed Hosea to experience that and to feel that pain. That's why I think that Hosea legitimately was in love with Gomer. I don't think that this was something where God came along and said, hey, I'm going to have you marry this whore here, and she's going to keep being a whore. I don't think that's how it happened. I think that Hosea knew her, loved her, married her, that they had a child together, and then she betrayed him and was unfaithful to him. God let Hosea experience that shock and pain of betrayal so that he could express from his own heart the pain of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, the spiritual adultery that Israel committed against God. But there's more to the story because God told Hosea to take Gomer back after she had left him for other men and, I believe, conceived children with those other men. And this was God's message to Israel, not the horror of adultery, but God's shocking response. The law would say, stone her. God, in his grace, said, take her back. And God did this to illustrate his unwavering commitment to his people, Israel, who in a spiritual sense had been unfaithful to him over many, many years. Many times God had let them out of Egypt and God had preserved them for 40 years in the wilderness, fed them, taken care of them made it known to them that he was their God, that he would provide for all their needs. And what did Israel do? Time and time again, they took up with other gods. They worshipped Baal. They offered their children to Moloch. And this happened time and time again. Hosea takes up the prophetic message from there and from chapter 4 until the end of the book of Hosea. Hosea sets before Israel all her cheating ways and all of God's gracious responses. Hosea prophesies of a coming destruction in Hosea chapter 10 and verse 14. Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled as shalman destroyed Beth Arbel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. This is Hosea prophesying of the impending doom on Israel. Notice, by the way, that it was Bethel, their own countrymen, 
who would do this to them. Bethel had become the center of idolatry for the ten northern tribes. And God is saying that Bethel would be the source of their coming disaster. It is thy own wickedness that corrects thee. Thy backslidings that shall reprove thee. Against this backdrop of sin and chastisement, God reminds Israel again of his own unwavering commitment to his people. In Hosea 11 and verse 1, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Hosea pointing back to when Israel was in bondage, slaves in the land of Egypt, and God led them out of Egypt. When there seems to be no hope, no chance of reconciliation, God reminds us, Israel is my son. Hosea 11 verse 1 points back to Israel's captivity in Egypt when God first announced that Israel is my son. In fact, in Exodus 4 verse 21, God sent Moses to Pharaoh with this very message. When thou goest to return unto Egypt, see that thou do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, listen, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve thee. So, so now, get this picture. Israel is a mess. They're, in, they're slaves to Egypt. They are in bondage. They are weak and helpless and hopeless. And that is when God claims them as a son. That's when God declares them his son. How, by the way, how different that is from many fathers who don't wish to claim their children in their worst moments. God claimed Israel in their worst moment as his son. Matthew points to that prophecy in Hosea 11 and verse 1 when he describes Joseph taking Jesus not out of Egypt but to Egypt for safety. Matthew tells us why Egypt, that it might be fulfilled, verse 15, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And while this might be the most neglected and under, least understood part of the Christmas story, we would do well to understand it. Every part of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Every part of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Fulfilled, then, doesn't mean that the prophecy was made, the prediction was made, and the prediction was kept. But fulfillment in the Bible means this, that Jesus is the fullest sense of everything we see in the Old Testament. Everything. And the Bible speaks, in fact, the book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus fulfilling the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament. Because all those sacrifices and all those offerings, and there were many, 
but all of them are summed up and completed and perfected in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know that Jesus spoke of the law as something that needed to be fulfilled, as if the law itself were prophetic. Jesus promised us, in fact, that not one jot or one tittle would pass from the law until all was fulfilled. That's because the righteousness, you know, the Bible tells us that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. And the, 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 the moral goodness, righteousness, that is presented and depicted in the law of the Old Testament, we get the fullest sense of it in the person of Jesus Christ, who the Bible tells us did no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. The history of Israel is given again in the life of Jesus. I could point out a number of things. I'll just point this out to you. The Israel spent 40 years in the desert, and Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And that's where you know, the prophets explained what God was doing with Israel because of their sin. And then Hosea comes along. And Hosea's message is that God is unwavering in his commitment to his people. Despite their treachery, Matthew describes the fullest sense of God's unwavering commitment to his people because God sent his son. Evil men tried to kill him, but God would not let anything harm his son until it was time for Jesus to be our sacrifice. God sent Jesus to die, and that death is the life of the world. Hosea has God's unwavering commitment then in mind. When Hosea made the prophecy, he had no idea that Hosea 11.1 would be applied to the Messiah the way Matthew applies it. But I fully believe that if Hosea were watching from heaven and saw what happened and saw what Matthew pointed to as a fulfillment of that, Hosea would say, yep, that's it. That makes sense right there. Now I understand. Because see, Hosea was a long line of those who had taken, if you ever seen someone take a tree stump and take a chainsaw and carve it out and make it into a grizzly bear? When they start out on it and when they're in the middle of it, it's hard to see how that bear is going to come out of that log. And Hosea was in the middle of chopping away. But when Jesus came, the picture was complete. Now we can see it. Now we can see what God was doing. If Hosea could answer a few questions now, he would say that when God called Jesus out of Egypt, everything made sense. 
Jesus explains the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. God the Father, and this is the message, that God the Father never drew back on his promise. Never changed his mind about it. Never thought to himself. Never had a second thought about it. Always, always intended to bring salvation to the world and was permitted to do so. The third thing I want to show you is that what happened to Jesus happens to us. Because Jesus left Egypt and so must we. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Keep in mind the difference between plundering Egypt, which we are free to do, and pitching our tent in Egypt, which we must not do. God calls us, in the Bible, a peculiar people. 1 Peter 2.9 But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Now understand that that word peculiar is old English. 400 years old, and, and in 400 years the word has come to mean something very different than what we mean by it today. So when God says that we're to be a peculiar people, he does not mean we're to be strange, odd, one-off. That's not what he means. The word peculiar in that old English, the same word, by the way, the same Greek word is translated obtained in several places in the New Testament. God means to say that you have been acquired. That God, through Christ, has purchased you. The margin on that verse that says, calls us a peculiar people. The margin says that peculiar can mean purchased. The, uh, one of the dictionaries says that the Latin peculium means private property. Peculiar people means a people especially possessed by God and particularly prized by Him. You belong to Him especially. And that should be evident to everyone who knows you. Yes, there's gold in Egypt. <clears throat> and on our way out, that's the key, on our way out, we're free to plunder. But there's a lot more garbage than there is gold. And we need to be sure that we're taking with us the gold and not sacks of garbage. Now, what I see in contemporary Christianity is an obsession with the garbage hauling it off from the rat-infested alleyways of Egypt and dumping it in the church. Plundering the gold means we carry off what is valuable and invest it in building a Christian culture. 
But many have settled for staring vaguely at the gold while adopting the unbelieving culture around us. And so the challenge to you is, just as Jesus came out of Egypt, so must we. Come out, leave Egypt, and don't go back. That's the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he left, unlike Israel, when Israel left Egypt, you know the saying has been thrown around for a long time, that God took Israel out of Egypt, but then after that he had to take Egypt out of Israel. When Jesus left Egypt, he did not bring any Egypt with him. He didn't look back. He didn't remember the fish that he ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Israel always struggled with that. Jesus did not. And he calls us to leave Egypt like he did. God called his son out of Egypt to give a fuller sense of his dealings with Israel in the Old Testament and to describe his dealings with believers in the New Testament. And whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. Now, good news. The reference to Hosea reminds us that God loves his children and that God is committed to preserving us to the end. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that's why Matthew quotes Hosea 11, verse 1. The theme of the chapter is God's love for Israel. Hosea points to the first exodus and say, it says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Hosea reminds Israel of their many failures, of their many returns to Egypt. He rehearses the loving ways that God dealt with his people, despite their many returns to Egypt. Hosea 11, verse 2, as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms. But they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws. And I laid meat unto them. And in verse 7, my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. How shameful. But then, God makes a startling statement through Hosea the prophet. Verse 9, Hosea 11. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger, I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. Now hear what God is saying there. God is not a man. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't draw back on his promises because of our bad behavior. 
That's what he's saying. Matthew tells us that the fullest sense of this divine patience and persistence came when God called his son, baby Jesus, out of Egypt. And God continues to extend that same loving persistence to wean our hearts of the world and to make us a holy people. God saves us, calls us, justifies us, arms us, equips us, empowers us, enables us, and sticks with us until his work is finished. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body, for we are saved by hope. Isn't that good? God has gone to such great lengths to assure you that when you put your faith and trust in him, that he is committed to bringing you safely home. Yes. Amen. And we can be sure of that. Amen. And we can be sure of it because out of Egypt have I called my son.